All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuckaholics? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. What's happening? I did it. I did it yesterday. Was my 18th sober birthday. I, I'm not toot my... I can toot my own horn once a year. Get my coin. Sarah the painter, she gave me a coin. It was nice. Got some nice congrats from people on the Twitter and on uh, in, in my family and friends. 18 years without a cocktail, a puff of weed, a line of blow, uh, uh, however you do meth. <laughs> no, nothing. Just this goddamn nicotine lozenges and this goddamn coffee, but nothing that makes my life unmanageable and destroys my health and and world and ability to cope and do things yes yes i'll take it 18 years yesterday sober i i made it today is just another day we're back to it we're back to a day at a time how are how are you people doing i don't i still don't uh, feel physically great and i do believe that um it's going to come down to me I'm probably going to have to get off of these nicotine lozenges again and and probably the coffee. And some of you have been with me long enough to know what that's like. We've we've been through this before. But I'm surprised at the parts of the attic brain that I still have. Let me tell you, I was working out with the lady that helps me work out today. And she's like, you just got to do it. You just got to go cold turkey. You got to just get off the you know, the nicotine, the caffeine, and I defended it like a goddamn junkie. I was like, no, I, I, I wouldn't. She goes, do you want to? I'm like, no, I don't. I don't want to. It was that tone. She's like, don't you want to quit those? And I'm like, no, I don't. I don't, I don't know how the hell I'll cope. I don't know what the hell I'll do. I don't know how I'll feel okay about life in the world. It's already hard enough without, without caffeine and and those nicotine uh, suckers, I don't know what the fuck. I don't, what the fuck am I going to do? Don't, no, I, I do not. Justified it. Justified my low level self medicating like a goddamn junkie. I'm sober from the bad shit, but this stuff is, I don't know. I think it's making me queasy. Something's making me queasy. Maybe it's just stress and fucking insanity in the goddamn world. Maybe the Trump reign of terror is starting to crush me uh, on a neurological level. That's the plan, right? You get about a third of the country that loves you no matter what the fuck you do, no matter who the fuck you bomb or who you hate on or what chaos you unleash on the world, on the country. And then you got about the other two thirds of people just terrified. And that just makes that one third laugh and excited that maybe they'll one day get us all to leave or watch us die. Yeah, that kind of stuff. All this nuclear saber rattling. Yeah, that maybe that's making me queasy. Does that sound like a reasonable reaction to that? Let's not dwell. I've 18 years sober, but that doesn't change the world. It doesn't change anything. It's just another day where I don't drink or use drugs and try to deal. Oh, let me tell you who's on the show. We got a little bit of a double header going. My old pal John Ronson is here. The very intelligent, witty, and uh, 
uh, smart writer, uh, John Ronson, has a new audio series for Audible. It's called The Butterfly Effect. Uh, the entire series is available for free at audible.com slash butterfly effect. And then after him, we've got uh, Canadian Mike McDonald. Old comic. I don't want to call him too old. He's probably about 10 years older than me, maybe a little less. But uh, I do have to qualify him as Canadian Mike McDonald, not Mike McDonald, the singer, not Mike McDonald, the comic from Boston. Mike McDonald, not that Mike McDonald. I'm doing a bad impression of a guy that most of you don't know. Mike McDonald. No, it's Canadian Mike McDonald. He's been through the uh, War of the Road, has some physical issues, a survivor, a real comedy life survivor who I met years ago who has been around for a long time and he had some health problems and stuff and then he, he's doing a, a some sort of filming thing around here and I came over and we talked for... About an hour. He's a real uh, comedy warrior, Mike McDonald. So he's coming up. But let's read a couple of pleasant emails. This one, I don't mean it to be a plug, but you can certainly take it that way. Uh, Waiting for the Punch is the subject line. That's the name of the uh, the WTF book coming out that you can pre-order now. I really had no intention of doing it, uh, a plug, but this is a nice email. Hi, Mark. I work at an indie bookstore in Connecticut and was able to get an advanced copy of Waiting for the Punch. I wanted to tell you that it was great. I was apprehensive at first that it was just blurbs from episodes that I've already heard, but the book is so finely curated and the excerpts are so impactful, I was barely aware I was reading from interviews I had already heard. Attempting Normal, that's my other book, had a huge impact on me and helped me through a tough divorce. And this new book comes at a time of transition for me as well and had a similar impact. I just wanted to tell you your comedy and your books have gotten me through some really dark days and I'm forever grateful for that. Chris wrote that. Well, good, Chris. I'm glad you got a copy of that. That seems to be the way people are responding to the book and I'm glad to help out and I'm glad you had that reaction to the book, which you can pre-order at WTFpod.com. Just click on that book thing. Yeah, click on it. Go get it. Go get go get it before it comes. Uh this is this is an email that I never never anticipated. I didn't think this would happen. I I I I'm I don't know what to do with it. I don't know what to do with the feelings that this uh, email uh brings out of me. It says meet baby Marin. That subject line will grab you. Like I knew this was going to happen. Oh my God. How old is it? He or she? Where, where did this happen? Where are you from? (laughs) How much, how much do you want? What's happening? Not that kind of email. Hey, Mark, my name is Wally. My wife, Chanel and I are huge fans and truly love your work. We live in Brantford, Ontario, Canada, and we listen to the podcast. We love your TV show and just recently saw you live for the first time at the Danforth Music Hall in Toronto. My wife is especially endeared to your no bullshit, brutally honest and vulnerable approach. On to the point, though. When thinking of unique names for our second child, one of the first things my wife thought of was Marin, and it stuck. What? 
It wasn't a pregnancy without its struggles, and baby Marin proved to be just as difficult to deal with as you portray yourself to be at times. He wound up being nearly two weeks overdue, required a C-section to deliver, and at nine pounds, two ounces, I doubt she would have wanted to push the hulking beast out of herself anyway. She's been through a lot, and as currently as I write this, still in hospital recovering. Both mama and baby are happy and healthy as I come home to get some sweet before having to go back to my day job as a welder in the morning. It would mean the world to me if you could just give her a shout out on the air and give her a little extra boost of morale from her favorite cranky little man. I write that lovingly. All right, Chanel. Good good job. Good job. I'm glad you 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 I you look you had to get it out of you somehow. And I'm I'm glad the kid is out and uh and he's doing all right. It is is it a boy? I'm try- yes, it's a boy. I'm glad little Marin is good. I'm glad it's not mine. Uh but only in namesake. And I'd like to welcome little Marin into the world and best of luck with it. And I'm glad you're okay. Uh, and here he says, I've included photos of your infant namesake, and I dare say he may be just a touch cuter than you, Big Marin. All the best, Wally. Oh, look at that kid. So that happened. There's a kid out there with my name. My last name is his first name. And I hope it's, it's, it's easier for him coming up with that name. <laughs> it's very flattering and very... Um, I, I can I could I can feel no other way other than uh, honored and 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 I'm and I'm glad uh, that the kid's all right. So let's uh, let's move into it. So this is um, me talking to John Ronson about his new uh, audio series called The Butterfly Effect. It's on Audible, and it's available for free at audible.com/slash/butterflyeffect. Enjoy. <laughs> So I haven't seen you in a while, and uh, and apparently you're doing things. Yeah, since I saw you last. <laughs> the last time I saw you, I was in the midst of my public shaming, public shaming. Oh, yeah. How did that? I, th- I imagine that book changed lives. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of pushback, though. Like we were just talking about Randy Newman. What was the whole name of the book again? So you've been publicly shamed. Yeah, I, that, I read that book. I've read most of your books. You're one of the guys that I read the books. I, I, when I prepare, I read them. Thank you. You and Sam Quinones and uh, Bruce Springsteen. That's where I feel Good. I belong. <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you. I yeah. So that was the last time I saw what, you. It was like, what was the pushback? Oh, did they try to shame you? Was that yeah. the, the weird? The backlash of writing a book, book about public shaming is that you were going, you were trolled and shamed. Yes. Really? Yes. It was a pain in the fucking neck. What happened? Well, like. Because my book is like, I'm, it's it's against the sort of culture of shaming. So obviously people who enjoy shaming people. Oh, you fucked with their hobby? Yeah. <laughs> I fucking did. I fucking did. It was, you you buzzkilled the, the assholes, yeah. the troll army, the army of unfuckable hate nerds yeah. came after you? And it was noisy. Oh, and it I lasted, bet. And it was relentless. It oh, was boy. relentless noise for about no a No kidding. Year. Like, what was the angle? Oh, oh, every angle you can possibly think of. Because one of the people I was nice about in the book was this woman, Justine Sacker, who's like yeah. a white, who, you know, on the surface of things, is like a kind of privileged white woman. Yeah. Um, oh, the one who, the South Africa thing? Yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah. Right. Uh, so, so I then became like, oh, Jonathan's only nice about privileged white people oh they were accusing you of virtue signaling yeah well virtue signaling on the 
Well, both. Ugh. Both sides. Oh, you both got it from sides. all angles. Yeah, I got it from all. You got the angles. righteous trolls and just the monster trolls. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah, I got the lot of them. There's so you know there's so many unimaginative people that live to cause you know start shit. That is their that's their creativity mm. is is causing problems. I was thinking a lot about consequences. Yeah, from because of working on the shame book. Yeah, yeah. Like I asked this guy one time who'd started this onslaught against this woman. Um, like a Gorka journalist. I said, how did it feel to have started the onslaught against yeah. her? He said it felt delicious. And I then hate he, the way they use that word. Yeah. And then he paused and said, but I'm sure, but I'm sure she's fine now. Yeah. And I happen to know that, you know, she, she was depressed and she wasn't leaving her house. Yeah. And, you know, she was probably having suicidal thoughts. Yeah. But for cognitive dissonance reasons, you know, you have to think that they're fine. You don't want to think there's consequences because, you know, you're, you're a nice person, yet you've just destroyed somebody's life. So to make that work inside your head, you have to pretend that they're fine. Or, or, or you have a, enough kind of sociopathic detachment to think that it just happens online and that's it. It's like, it's like a person who rages. When they're done yelling, they're like, are we good? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I was thinking about like how, you know, for the internet to work, you have to sort of not think about the consequences of your actions. Uh -huh. and, and I thought, where else does that exist on the internet? And the place where I thought it really existed is porn. So a few things happened. Could I tell you these things that happened? Yeah. Okay. Um, I, for my shamed book. Oh, I, you went on a porn set? Yeah, I went on a porn yeah, set. Yeah, I remember. Um, which was great. I'm actually in a porn. I am briefly in a porn film called mm -hmm. Public Disgrace mm. because it was my first ever porn set and I wanted to like see what was happening. So I, I leaned, I kind of leaned in. Yeah. Um, this was a woman was getting her genitals electrocuted and I thought... I'd, for I'd, real? For real, yeah, because in a break from the filming, everybody like thought well this can't be real because it was like set in a bar in the valley yeah and and the conceit was that princess donna the porn star was pulling in this woman called Joni tate jody yeah. taylor and would then like electrocute her genitals in front of everybody in the bar so during a break what kind of porn is this well it's weird porn it's 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 humiliation <laughs> porn okay um and so everybody was like testing the electrocution yeah. machine during a break and and it really was giving electric shocks it was real so so i like i like kind of peered in i said so somewhere in a film called public disgrace there's like a tweedy <laughs> gentleman <laughs> holding a notepad like peering <laughs> in <laughs> like i'm just hoping that like, for somebody out there that's a that's a that's, well, a, that's a nice nice promo for that film i remember my big memory of that night uh, well, i have two memories of that night yeah one is the like it started late. It started like ten thirty, uh -huh. and I was still on New York time. So kind of like hazy. Yeah. Kind of. So like one a.m. I was just thinking, please ejaculate so I can just go home. <laughs> uh, and then I thought, God, I'm like thousands of women before me. <laughs> please ejaculate so I can go to sleep. Can we just get closure on this. Yeah. Some messy closure on this situation. I'm tired. <laughs> And my other memory was that when I was meeting Princess Donna, so I was staying that night at this fancy Los Angeles hotel, the, the uh, Chateau Marmont. Yeah. So I was in my room and the, uh, the guy, the receptionist phoned up and said, your guest is waiting for you downstairs. Yeah. So I went downstairs and everybody else in the lobby was dressed like, exactly like I'm dressed now in like sure, kind of sure, James like, Purse yeah, grey yeah. hoodies celebrity hiding yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> like a celebrity burka like yeah, a grey yeah, hoodie yeah. which yeah, I just yeah. sort of hide underneath and, and uh, so it makes everybody go is that I don't know is it <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but 
Except for Princess Donna, who yeah. was dressed like this kind of great mad peacock. Yeah. She looked like so otherworldly. Hollywood. Yeah. And I was porn and, and yeah. I walked towards her. Really interested in it. Like she was interesting to me. Sure. And and Peacocks are interesting. Yeah. So I especially in the context of grey <laughs> sweatpants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I and I looked around and I noticed the receptionist as I was walking towards her and the receptionist was looking at her. Uh-huh. And the look, he didn't realize anybody was looking at him, looking yeah. at her. And the look on his face was one of contempt, like huh. disgust. And it made me think, whoa, like she, it made me think that some people are only comfortable with porn people when they're on their computers and not in their vicinity. Sure. Uh, and so I became curious, like after my little mini porn experience. But do you think he knew she was a porn person? I think he knew she was some kind of sex worker. You know what? Even if it's weird though, because that street, there, you know, at a different era, yeah. was just like a parade of that. When I was totally. at, at the comedy store in the late eighties, it, it was all over the place. Yeah. I, go ahead. Uh, well, you know, I, I could have misread. It's possible that I misread the situation, and he probably just was. Uh, she, he thought he she was being a little bit much for the. Uh, for the yeah. chateau, and funnily enough, I, I brought this up with another porn star a couple of weeks later, yeah. and and she took the side of the receptionist. Oh yeah, yeah, fuck and, her. Well, Ben basically said yeah. like, well, she should have dressed more demurely. Yeah. Um, but anyway, and I might have misread yeah. the situation, but it did make me curious about uh -huh. the lives of porn people, and and so I started like reading their blogs and and so on, and and like what were their concerns, and and. What I realized yeah. was that a lot of porn people were concerned about the very same, very specific thing. And it was a man called Fabian. Yeah. And I became really interested in Fabian. What does that mean? Fabian's a guy called Fabian Tillman. Yeah. And uh, he's a Brussels entrepreneur. Uh-huh. And when he was a teenager, he had an idea. And the idea was basically to get rich and giving the world free porn online porn. Oh. So he didn't invent porn. I am hub. personally grateful. Right. Well, <laughs> you and 75 million other people every day. It, 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 the weird thing that, just I know I'm getting ahead of you, but that, that what it enables you to do is is not invest as much time. You know, internet porn, free porn, enables you to use it as a drug, which is what it is. Like, you know, it's like, I got six minutes, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you don't have to invest in a story. You don't really have to fast forward. There's plenty available. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm not proud of it. I'm not saying I'm compulsive about it, but it's nice knowing it's there, right? Right. Well, <laughs> it's certainly taken off in a big way. The business itself, whether it's free porn or not, must be a, a massive business still for somebody mm. and because like there is literally not unlike uh you know troll culture or social networking is that this the globe and america in particular has become co completely pornified and and almost embraces it mm. that you know coming out of the 80s where there was a commission put together to fight it that now it's sort of like it's just matter of fact how does that happen? It might, and to me, it must be about money. Yeah, well, I can I can answer all of those questions. I'm now <laughs> I'm now an expert at Pornhub economics. Yeah. Uh, so Fabian Fabian, by the way, got so rich uh, from owning Pornhub and basically buying up the entire San Fernando Valley, pretty yeah. much. Like eighty, like at one point in about 2012, 
80% of everybody in the world who watched porn was watching it on one of Fabian's sites. But then wasn't that, then doesn't the model become more of a, a YouTube model for performers? Well, eventually it sort of right. turned into that. But the but the foundation, I should explain, by the way, Mark, that all of this is, and I've, I've just made this audio series called The Butterfly Effect. Yeah. And the flap of the butterfly's wings is Fabian giving the world free porn. Oh. And the entire series is about the consequences. Like, oh. And it goes out and out and out. Um, so to the strangest places yeah like our our sort of challenge to ourselves is if you follow consequence through to consequence like from fabian giving the word free pod where the fuck are you going to end up and you end up with um a man in norway having his having his expensive stamp collection destroyed by three women so that's like one of the places we end up by tracing this this butterfly effect. But let me tell you about that's one of those weird things where it's a spoiler, but it's so compelling and you cannot figure out the story. Like, where the fuck you? How the fuck do you get from one to the other? Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Fabian, um, Fabian bought Pornhub when it was like a fledgling company owned mm-hmm. by these guys up in Montreal, uh, and um, he wanted to expand. Like that wasn't enough for him. So he um, got a bank loan to expand. Now, one real irony, like Pornhub was, the foundation of Pornhub was pirated porn. Mm -hmm. Like they didn't upload pirated porn themselves, but they kind of allowed a space for for users, for fans. Pirated, meaning not original? Stolen. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, some... You know, company would would make a porn film, and then the day it's released on DVD, yeah. somebody would just upload it onto Pornhub, and it would stay on Pornhub. But everybody would watch it for free, right? So all the mom and pop porn production companies would have to close down. Porn stars would have to go into like escorting to right, pay right. the rent, mm. uh, and everybody was watching their porn for free on Pornhub, pirated. Now, if anybody said to Pornhub, "Can you take down our this porn belongs to us and it's illegally uploaded?" Yeah. They'd go, "Oh, sorry, we'll take it down," and they'd take it down, right? But by then, like, all the porn in the world was, like, on Pornhub for free. So, yeah. you know, it was like trying to cut down a forest with a butter sure. knife. It's a, it's a lot like YouTube. Yeah. yeah. So Fabian got Fabian wanted a bank loan to help him expand. A band loan? A bank loan. Bank loan. Yeah, okay. like a loan from... Like I thought you were talking some tech term that I didn't know. Bank mm. loan. Yeah, bank loan. Got it. Now, one irony in all of this is that if you're a woman in porn, if you're a porn performer, yeah. and you go to a bank manager and ask for like a checking account, mm. they might turn you down because it's like you're, you're deemed disreputable. Yeah. So, but Fabian, he wasn't like a porn performer he was a tech entrepreneur so he got a 362 million dollar loan to build an empire based in part on the handling of those women's stolen porn yeah so with this loan he bought up like you know loads of like porn production companies in la and within a year he was like he owned like all of it. Yeah, he owned all of it for for all intent. I mean not all of it, but he owned a shit. So so it. it was no longer the quaint family business it once was. No. Like it's sort of like the transition from you know, the in Boogie Nights that that shift from you know, the theaters mm. to the video. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And also, like, it was also documented a bit in the Tales from Times Square when, uh-huh. when you know, it moved out of the theaters into the, the quarter swap, into the right. coin-operated booths. 
there's been several different yes. evolutions of it. And I imagine David Simon's new series it's is going to talk be, about that. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. That was like Times Square. But but what's happening now is, you know, the, the sort of porn DVD culture turned into like free porn on Pornhub. And I was really interested in the consequences. Like no one who worked up at Pornhub HQ ever went on a porn set. Right, but like, so initially you were interested in personal consequences, or is there, it seems like this thing kind of came around the side for you. That you, that you, it seemed like what you were looking for was something shame based, and then it kind of became this yeah. other thing. Well, consequence based, consequence. Like, yeah, like to eat the meat, you need to ignore the slaughterhouse. Yeah, and I think nobody, like everybody, was watching porn for free on Pornhub, and nobody was thinking about the consequences. And I wasn't like I didn't know anything about. I didn't have no idea what impact it was having on people. So I just became curious for that reason, um, and. So I discovered, like, you can imagine, like, some of the consequences are uh, what you'd expect. Yeah. Like, you know, poor women having to take a escorting, for instance. But then, as we dug and dug and dug, we found these other consequences, which are kind of mind-blowing. Like? Well, one of my favorites is, like, from the ashes of the old-style porn yeah. business, this new phoenix is rising and it's the world of bespoke porn bespoke yeah this, so like if you're a, if you have a porn film in mind yeah that just doesn't exist anywhere in the world oh, okay, okay. you can get like a team oh, of professional porn people to make sure. a porn film just for you oh yeah but the bespoke porn world is is That's, unexpectedly you like this one I, I, you like the creativity of it well, it's like such an insight to people's inner lives because you wouldn't believe some of these bespoke porn films that are being made. So these of course are, I would. I mean, you just told me one about a woman who gets her genitals electrocuted and that was mainstream. Yeah, that's mainstream. This one is a company... Okay, so one porn film that we found, one bespoke porn film was a man in Norway. Yeah. I alluded to this earlier. A man in Norway. Same guy? Yeah, he spent his life amassing an incredibly valuable book of stamps yeah. and his bespoke porn film just for him was to pay porn performers in the San Fernando Valley to destroy his stamp collection uh, and uh, by kind of ch by throwing it into the fire while chanting burn burn so this this the sexual element is uh subverted somehow I mean that's a uh, the guy's uh yeah. <laughs> not quite submissive but he he wanted he he definitely he got sexual pleasure from seeing this stamp collection which he clearly a lifelong obsession yeah which he regretted i think he he feels like he made a mistake spending well at least he's got the film of it yeah 10 films he's made 10 <laughs> he's made ten, he's commissioned 10 how much is the cost to commission something like that like or, a, to have somebody to have some women you know naked women come over and burn my garage down uh, what uh, would that? What would that? Well, cost you need me? a fire marshal, so that's a little bit more. But you know, I like ten thousand dollars. I reckon that's could, not bad. Yeah, I know some porn performers, and maybe you know they maybe cut me a deal. <laughs> They'll give you a deal. Not long ago, we had one bespoke porn producer tell us um, that a man had just emailed them and said he was requesting a video, and his video was for a porn performer to sit cross-legged on the floor, fully clothed, and saying to the camera, "You are loved." Things may be bad now, but they won't always be. And suicide is not the answer. Like a known porn performer. Um, well, I think in that particular case, like they got to choose their own. That's pretty touching. It, yeah. It kind of, uh, it's almost uh, worthy of uh, of museum work. Yeah. Video. Yeah. It's an art piece. 
it is an act piece well they wrote back to him and said like this really moved them because obviously well it would and so they wrote back to him and said well look we can shoot this really soon uh, it, it was pressing like before you kill yourself <laughs> yeah, right. and um, he didn't write back to them oh. so then it was like what do we do so they made it they made it for him anyway they paid the porn performer and made it for him anyway and sent it to him and and they haven't heard back and the video is basically this woman sitting on the floor in a house in the valley it's like this white mansion saying you know basically please don't kill yourself i mean i think the the only it's a beautiful video the one error i could possibly say is that like they chose this kind of white mansion it looks like heaven from a movie so it's maybe not the best idea to make a bespoke porn film in which you're kind of convincing somebody to not kill themselves on a set that basically looks like heaven from an 80s film Hmm. but she's sort of um she's sitting cross-legged on the floor and she's saying you know lots of people love you i love you I have thought about dying myself in the past, but, you know, I've I've pulled myself back from that. And, you know, please don't do it. You know, please stick with us. And then she blows a kiss at the camera. Mm. And they sent the video to this guy. And who knows? Well, John, I'm not disappointed in your reporting. <laughs> what do you Why? mean, well, who knows? Well, I mean, I guess we could track the guy down yeah what are you talking about you're not going to do follow-up you're just going to end on the horrible sad existentially sort of provocative possibility that he's that he hasn't got back to them because he's dead dead. or hasn't got back to them because actually he just wanted to get off on a video of a woman telling him but where's the follow-through ronson i don't like it isn't the not knowing yeah, there's, that's, there's poetry in that, but you, you're kind of half a reporter. <laughs> All right, I'll fucking find out. That's right, you I'll find eat, out. I'll you better you. find out on the on the next uh, you know bunch of uh, butterfly effects. Yeah. Or is this it? No, there might be more. Before we get off that other topic, the sure. thing is that if you did your due diligence as a reporter, uh, at either end of that story is is not going to diminish what happened there. You're just going to have to handle the worst of it. Yeah. But, you know, if it, you know, if it did pull him back or the guy does become interested, the worst that could happen is the dude's just sort of like, I just want to see if they do it. You know, that that's the worst that can yeah. happen. Any other thing, any other outcome is, is, is another good story. Yeah. You know, even that story is a good story. I, I got emotional and now I'm mad at you. Right. Well, that story is a good story because they, he, he massively moved these porn people. They were, as they were making the video for him, they were, they were themselves crying. Because obviously it was kind of triggering stuff they're, they're, from their own A lot lives. of them are, are very sensitive people. Yeah. The, the, the women that I, I know. Oh, I yeah, mean. no question. So even if this guy was just fucking with them. Yeah. Mark, you, have you got tears in your eyes? I did before. They oh, went away. Right. Well, um, no, they, yeah. They, well, yeah, the, the fact that you don't know the guy. Yeah. You know, oh, like I, you don't know what happened. No, we don't know what happened. Yeah, I get choked up. I'm a, yeah, I get choked up a lot in here. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes. I, what well, are you sorry about? I'm, I'm sorry. I think it's a powerful uh, bit of business. Yeah. Now, yeah I, now I got to listen to it. Yeah. I should have done that before I talked to you, but it's better this way. Sounds like a very compelling uh, series there, John. Oh, uh, Mark, you wouldn't believe. <laughs> well, I mean, I could talk about porn for a while. I've got my own ideas. The accessibility of it has, you know, and the fact that porn addiction is a very real thing, that you know you are creating some sort of psychologically uh, chemical change in your brain oh, and no it question. is absolutely a, 
a compulsion. I know guys that are lost in it, man. Yeah, and you know erectile dysfunction rates have like shot through the. Of course, because a therapist of mine like put it uh, like we were talking about. He's he's also been a guest on the show that when you are compulsive masturbator, your primary sexual partner is yourself. Yeah. So you you know, and you have a lot of control in that situation. Yeah. You know, um It's neutering a generation of men. Yeah. My producer Lena met a sex doll manufacturer at the AVN, you know, the adult industry yeah. expo, and he said like his business is going through the roof since free streaming porn because it's so much harder. Like if you watch porn constantly on, you know, tube sites it's much harder for you to have sex with an actual human. Well, you so don't get outside. You don't know yeah. how to talk. You don't know how to get there. So more and more people are buying right, so sex dolls. Right, like a pseudo-necrophilia culture. Yeah, or just, you know, or, you know, just compliance and perfection. Mm. You're talking about, you know, like a, 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 a emotionless doll that has a compelling vaginal feature and oral feature is uh, perfection? Or it looks like, um, I met this guy in Louisiana, mm. who, like, he's probably in his 50s now. When he was, like, in his late teens, he was in love, desperately in love with this girl called Darlene. And they were going to get married, and he loved Darlene more than anything yeah. in the world. And then one day, Darlene dumped him, like, just left him and yeah. refused to explain why. Mm-hmm. And it broke his heart. And cut to, like, 40 years later, uh, a friend of his says, go on this website, and he finds a sex doll that is identical looking to Darlene. Oh. So he buys her. Mm. And, um, it's a love story. He said that she's better than Darlene because like, when he shared a bed with Darlene, he'd wake up in the middle of the night and Darlene was like, right the other side of the bed, Yeah, which was like a clue to the fact that their relationship was right. Gonna, whereas whereas the, the sex doll, yeah. he wakes up in the middle of the night and she's draped around him. Yeah, or on the floor and then he just pulls her back into the bed. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it's very sweet. Isn't it, it? it sounds like a a compelling bit of business that I'm I'm not sure the the arc of it is is an indication of anything good. No, it's not. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's really not. It, the arc of it is basically tech people are taking over the world. One of Fab going back to Fabian. One of Fabian's employees said to me, "Like, don't think of me as a porn person. I'm not a piece of garbage peddling smut." I'm a tech person. Well, this is the same type of detachment that enables a troll to not think they ruined someone's life. Exactly. Tech people taking over the world. No one really cares because they're giving us what we want, which is free porn on the internet. Um, right, it's, a, it's all the revenge of the nerds. We had no idea it would be apocalyptic. <laughs> exactly. That, that's, that's the heart of the story. It's tech nerds taking over our lives. We don't care. And the consequences to uh, a boundless. How does the economic model work now for like YouPorn or Pornhub or whatever the other ones are called? How are they making the money? Well, you know, you're right that there's like, you know, you can set up a page on Pornhub where you can like, you know, sell your own stuff. But as Mike Quasar said to me, this old old style director said to me the other day, like this, this incredibly famous porn actor called Janice Griffiths. Yeah. Um said to him the other day, you know, how can you be anti-Pornhub? Like, my Pornhub page on, you know, maybe like $3,000 last month. Yeah. And she's like one of the most successful current sure. porn stars. And Mike said to her, like, 20 years ago, you'd have made like 30 grand. Yeah. So they don't know. Like, they, they don't know that they're part of this business that's just... Uh, that's that's just eating away at the kind of money that they used to make. This is all very specific to uh, 
to who you talk to and to you know this business model but i mean if yeah. you go on to any of these sites you're like there's plenty of people making fuck movies there there's no short I, to the point where i'm like i don't know what my neighbor's doing right now <laughs> you know yeah which by the way is part of the problem because you've got like this massive influx of women in the valley like in the old days in the 90s there was a kind of you know if you wanted to get into porn you were like bonnie and clyde you know there was a kind of there was a sort yeah. of outlaw yeah. status and, and but sure, now you just you needed a doctor to give you your the pills for you know whenever you get manageable sexually transmitted diseases and he just was part of the liability of the work right but now the valley is full of this kind of massive influx of eight, 18 year old girls who grew up on Pornhub think that looks like fun and an easy way of making money people who are detached from uh, the input well, yeah. well that's a, well that's an interesting sort of idea you know uh, Wilhelm Reich mm. had you know w when he kind of hot-rotted Freud's ideas about sexual repression and neuroticism, you know, pictured a world where, uh, you know, sexuality would be completely De untethered. Right, and destigmatized. From and its Victorian uh, uh, constraints, yeah. and that uh, it would make for a better world. Yeah, and you know what? That, that world is kind of starting to happen, and that's, that's the plus side, I would say. I'm with Reich on this. That's like, that's the upside of it. <laughs> the downside, though, is that, you know, thousands of, of you know, young 18-year-old girls, like, arrive in the valley uh -huh. um, without feeling any stigma about porn, which and is obviously fucking good. for money. Yeah. Uh, they work for, like, a month, and then they don't need, nobody needs to employ them anymore, because there's another bunch of girls getting off the bus. So the downside is, is that... They got to enter the workforce with uh, with Pornhub videos on their resume. Yeah, and, uh, uh, yes, and, and they come here with all those hopes and dreams, and they get a month of work, and then they're fucked. Well, I mean, but the, let's, do you really want to call them hopes and dreams? I mean, like, you know, the mm. thing is, is that it's still a, a, a very male-dominated business, and and, you know, there's a lot of these... 18 year old girls that I don't know they necessarily really know what they're getting into and uh, they get you know uh, abused and fucked up and strung out and it, like I'm not look I mean everyone's got free will but I mean we are talking 18 you know it's legal but it's still young well we my producer Lee and I we, we embedded ourselves in the side of the porn industry in the valley where you know there's much less exploitation where like there's where uh the sets are kind of respectful and the women earn good money so we you know we didn't want to go to like the sort of hot girls wanted sort of sleazy side of the well industry. you well again due diligence ronson i'm well, glad no, you've that, got a, a balanced bit of uh, uh of, no because we no because like i wanted our series to be about the tech takeover of the okay, okay. i didn't want it to be about the little dark corners of the industry. Well, now you've opened up a can of worms though man <laughs> no i i stand by that uh, because i i like i never make films i never make stories about goodies and baddies but in this story if anybody's a baddie it's uh -huh. it's the it's the far away tech entrepreneurs who like fucked everything up from from afar so we just wanted to concentrate on that okay. particular story okay I'm, I'm i on think board. that's cool i mean i'm sure there's I'm gonna fine be fine with it i i just like it yeah. so it's a very it's a it, it, it is something that i i don't know has really been like the evolution of porn and the nature of it in our own our own sort of you know kind of conflicted feelings about sex workers in general or how they're characterized like you know i got an email recently that that you know that i i sort of condescend you know in humor uh, about you know the nature of strippers or hookers or, or how they're sort of 
characterize and I know sex workers and I, I'm certainly you know uh, accept them and and the the work and I, I have a different I still do jokes sometimes but I don't I understand the business mm-hmm. and that there is respect involved there but it it is still a a fairly unexplored uh, you know notion the, the 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 state of the contemporary porn industry totally that's why you know I I really wanted to make that decision to not follow in the footsteps of, of films like Hot Girls Wanted, which are about the sort of, you know, seedier side of no, the No, I industry. think you're right. It seems like you're writing a line. I like it. And yeah. I, I like your work. And I, I was just pushing back a little bit. But but I should find out what happened to that guy. I will. Thanks, man. There you go. Sounds like a compelling bit of business. I always like talking to John Ronson. So... Look, Mike McDonald here. Like, a lot of you may not know him, but I've known him, and he's been around for a long time. I remember seeing him on a very early, I think it might have been a young comedian special. I'll talk to him about that. But he was one of these guys that, you know, was sort of on the periphery of American comedy a bit, and he, you know, he he ran with some of the hardcore dudes that, that I looked up to and I got tangled up with. And, you know, you get to a certain age in this business where, if somebody survives and they're still at it, uh, you know, you're like, good for you, man. You're also, you know, if somebody survives and they got out, you're also like, oh, good for you. What a fucking relief that would be if you can live with yourself. But but Mike's not one of those guys. He's the other guy. He's still in it. He's still doing it. He's uh, persevered through some uh, serious health issues. And, uh, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad I got to talk to him because I was afraid he was going to die. And he didn't. And he's doing all right. This is me and Canadian Mike McDonald. Now, am I am I wrong in remembering that um, you were once referred to as the doctor? Was that you? Uh, no, not the doctor. Maybe I'm making it up. I don't know why I would have. But at some point, I remember talking about Sam, about Kennison. Oh, right. Coming up to Canada, yeah, <laughs> and finding you. Did yeah. Sam Kennison call you the doctor? Uh, I believe on that night, yes. Because <laughs> I was, uh, yeah. He he had never shot heroin before. Oh, so you I, were the guy. I had everything ready and stuff, and and knowing that, you yeah, know, the first time you do it, uh, uh, and and a lot of people, for every time they do it, yeah, they get sick, throw up, and then right. they get high, yeah. So knowing that he was like that, as soon as soon as I. I hit him up, I undid the uh, the band, and yeah. uh, when when the when the sensation got up to about his neck, I yeah. grabbed him and I said, "One more soul, and I get mine back." <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I threw him towards the ground. He's going, "Oh, you bastard! Oh, you son of a bitch, McDonald!" <laughs> and then he went out. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Oh my God! Uh, Those are see, we're laughing about that, but I think the most yeah, heroin addiction. Ah, yeah. <laughs> funny. Most mortals would be like, "What the fuck are they laughing?" Yeah, at? exactly. Those monsters. Uh, I'm I'm glad those days. Are over. I think when I hit thirty, I decided to quit everything. Was it thirty? Yeah, around there. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I don't think I've seen you in a long time. And uh, wait, are you not living in Canada, though? Are you? Uh, I, I had to virtually go back. I was living in Glendale, and I was fine, and everything it was great. But uh, then I got sick. And what I, was the sickness? What is uh, the sickness? Liver disease. And and w- w- now you're shooting a documentary now. 
Yeah. And 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 is it my understanding? I don't know how to put it uh, bluntly. That time is short. Ah. Uh. <laughs> or are you. I was, I was pitched this as like, he's, he could go any second. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's always a chance you can go any second. But, uh, yeah, this is more of uh, I'm finally back to where I was before I got sick. Oh, really? So yeah. you're doing good? Yeah. Oh, so thank I'm God. back on the road, back doing my act really? full time. Yeah. And stuff, oh, my so. God. That's, I'm so That's relieved good. because, like, what I was under, I, I, what, what I had misunderstood the documentary yeah. to be was, like, he's got days, maybe weeks to live. Well, yeah. Well, ac- actually, they're hoping because that would be the big finale to the documentary. <laughs> and <laughs> then he died. He didn't make it. <laughs> they're counting on it. Well, I mean, look, here's the thing about you is that I don't know how many people know exactly who you are, but you've been, you've been doing comedy for as long as I can remember watching comedy because i remember the first time i saw you like it was on like a catch rising star young comedian thing maybe? yeah yeah and at that time though it. right but at that time you're like these the new wave come yeah <laughs> the <laughs> punk comedian yeah yeah but like you were doing He's edgy yeah well you were doing weird bits yeah like abstract oh, yeah. bits yeah it was that was the angle yeah, at the time <laughs> I just thought, oh, anything that's funny, and yeah, there was a lot of drug fueled stuff. But then, like I saw you years later, you, you know, I, I think I saw you uh, at Catch a Rising Star when I was in Boston. But then I saw you years later, and you were just this angry, sweaty mess. <laughs> you like, <laughs> like I'm like, what happened to the new wave guy? You're like, oh, <laughs> fuck that, fuck this, <laughs> right? Yeah. The evolution, the bitterness had taken hold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that was always my uh, my thing that attracted me to a lot of comedians when I was a kid. It was the yelling and stuff because my father would yell, and I always thought it was great that you could laugh at yelling as opposed to being afraid of it, De- devastated by yeah. it. So where where did you grow up though? Uh, and a number of places because my dad was in the Air Force. So every in the two, Canadian Air years, Force, yeah, every two three years we moved somewhere else. But like, tell me some places in Canada because I don't know about Canada. I'm thinking about uh, living there soon. Yeah, Nova Scotia <laughs> at one point, Greenland. Uh, You're in Greenland. Yeah, and we do you were, remember it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, my favorite posting. He was in uh, Ramstein, Germany, which was NATO headquarters at the time, 1964 to 69, which was a great time to be there because of the music alone. Sure. How you so, were like what? And you're like like 13. Or uh, I was nine, 1964, when I got there, and uh, I remember them taking me on vacation. And uh, we were in Amsterdam, and there's a little coffee house, and it said, Jimi Hendrix, live tonight. And I went, oh, my God. Really? And that's when I realized, oh, if I was 18, I'd be having the time of my life. But I'm 12, and I have to go with my parents to the ice capades. You know, it's like, oh, God. <laughs> I, I never forgave them for that. I could have seen Hendrix. And it, you didn't. Uh, and I missed them. God damn it. But when you but you were, you were into music like that at that age? Oh, yeah. I do, mean, do you have an older brother? No, no. Really? That's the thing. I mean, uh, a kid... A Jewish kid in my uh, grade five class turned me on to Jimmy Henry. Listen to this, Purple Haze, and I went, "Oh my God, that's so different than the the Beatles and everything right, else right. that we were listening to." And yeah, I flipped out on it. So that was in Germany and Greenland. Like, is it pretty? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's great. And they have a base there? That's not Canadian territory, though, is it? No. It's I mean, its own place? Well, they used to have more more stuff there in the past, but now, now they don't. I don't think so. So when did... Uh, do you have brothers or sisters? Uh, two younger brothers, yeah. How are they doing? Uh, they're doing okay. One's, one's a lounge singer. Uh, he goes by Johnny Vegas. 
Which is weird. Oh, I know him. I saw him in London. Yeah. That's your brother? No, there's a bunch. There's a Johnny Vegas in every country in the world. (laughs) I was going to say, that guy didn't look like He's the Canadian one. He's the Canadian Johnny Vegas? Yeah, he's the Canadian So they do a kind of like disrupted, (laughs) chaotic lounge act? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And what's the other one do? The other one end up out of show business? (laughs) I'm not sure anymore. You don't know what the other brother does? uh, Oh, the the other. Oh, I thought you meant the other Johnny Vegas because I saw him a long time ago in Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah, right. That's where I saw him. Right. Um, that might have been where I saw you. Was that like 2006 or something? Uh, yeah, it could have been around there. Yeah. yeah. What's the other brother do? Uh, my other brother, he's a drummer in a band. We all ended up in show business. Yeah, it was weird. What, is he in a big band like Rush? Uh, is, he, is he Neil Peart? No, no. He's, <laughs> he, he'd, he'd be more like walking into Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, that kind of band. Oh, know? yeah? Yeah. But they're Canadian? Yeah, basically. Do they have a, a interesting, uh, just short of a good name, Canadian band name? Yeah, it's called the Awesome Brothers. It's <laughs> you know, just like, oh, well. Someone doesn't want to yeah. make money. I, I don't think any of the three of us were any good at titles. <laughs> So like what? So what rank was your dad? Was he like a big shot or no? He was what you call a warrant officer. It was like the uh, one step uh, before becoming a, uh, a an actual officer. Yeah. And uh, so you know, it, like people that would ask me, did he fly a plane? No, he flew a desk. <laughs> you know, but he's one of the best desk yeah, pilots. He was nice and safe in the Canadian Air Force. <laughs> And what did your mom do? Just deal with you guys? Uh, she, yeah, she was a traditional stay-at-home mom and stuff for a long time. And then uh, she started working as a medical receptionist in a hospital. So where did it start leveling off? Because I have no sense. Like, I think you're the first guy of your generation. And you were like, uh, you know, you were you were part of the, you know, the, I think the, the that 80s stand-up boom. Yeah. Where everyone could make a buck. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing. Back in those days, you could make, uh, you know, $4,000 a week without having a sitcom. It was amazing. Because there were so many clubs yeah, opening it was, up. Yeah, it was great. And you were sort of a known guy up in Canada. Yeah. Right? Yeah, to a point, yeah. Well, like, what was the Canadian scene, though? Like, when you grew up, where'd you grow up mostly? Like, once you got old enough to start giving a shit about things? Um, I started high school in Ottawa, which was my dad's last posting, and we stayed there for a long Long time and that's where I started doing stand up, and then I moved to Toronto and then Toronto to uh, LA. What's the scene like though? Like, how old were you when he started? Uh, I think it was 22. Really, 22, 23. Did you go to college? No, 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 <laughs> <laughs> no. I barely, barely made it through the 10 years in high school, but uh, yeah, no, no college. Everything. I had a, a series of odd jobs before I decided uh, to become a comedian. And I actually thought at one point it was going to be like I played the drums and I thought music was going to be a yeah, ticket. Yeah, sure. But and then when I f- realized that in comedy, I didn't have to have four other people agreeing with everything I said. I could do it myself. So yeah. the comedy sort of took over. But at that time, when what were the odd jobs? Like, what, like what were you? <laughs> well, at one point, I was a, a, a dance instructor for Fred Astaire. Stop it! Dance Come on, studios. Come on. It was during the disco phase, and we dance all day, and then we dance all night, and we and you know I was making like five thousand dollars a week doing. So you knew the disco dance? Yeah, it was weird. It yeah. was <laughs> it was a weird time, you know. <laughs> and then when the comedy started, I actually started at what turned into the punk club scene in Ottawa. And uh, boy, uh, there was an audience that you learned the uh, the possibilities of good editing. Yeah. Because if they didn't like something, they'd let you know. So like, so we're talking like what year? Like you're 22, and what year? Uh, it was 1978. So like these punk rock clubs, 
Were they real punk rock clubs, or were they? Well, like- uh, there, there was only one, and yeah, it was definitely the punk scene. It was, uh, you know, groups like Teenage Head from Canada. I don't know if you heard. Of, they were like our version of the Ramones. Oh yeah, and and they were like really good. I really enjoyed seeing a lot of the band. I, I was really into the music still, obviously, but uh, the comedy thing just took off. Like, but but for you to choose that club. Over, like, you know, why that place? Like, were there comedy? You were in Toronto at this point? Yeah, well, no, it was in Ottawa still. It, was there it, it was Yuck Yucks Ottawa. there yet or anything? No, uh, Yuck nothing. Yucks would come in about two and a half years later. So there was nothing? No, there, and, there was no official comedy club whatsoever. Well, what compelled you? Who did you see that made um, you think that? It, it was a friend of mine was uh, recording local bands and stuff, and uh, he called me in to do something comedy because he had heard this album called Derek and Clive Live. Yeah. With Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. And they got really drunk, and they turned on the tapes, and they got all this stuff. And, and some of it was okay. Like, I still remember the joke about, what's the worst job you've ever had? Well, I used to pick lobsters out of Jane Mansfield's bum. You know, and, you know stuff like that. So my friend, <laughs> that, you know. A, that's the one that sticks. Yeah. So my friend who had the studio in his basement, and I'd been in the band with him before, uh, he said, well, why don't we do something with, with with comedy, too, but instead of alcohol, we'll get really high. Yeah. And boy, we recorded like 18 hours of tapes that if they heard them now, even, I would have to leave on the next shuttle. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't stay on the planet with their, you know, like, like I see what people are getting in trouble now, and I go, no, that's nothing compared to these tapes. I mean, oh, my what, God. What were you guys done? Uh, we were just, we went anywhere. And on the top it off, we had... Uh, uh, the engineer guy is his name was Carl Schultz, and he was German, right? Yeah. And for me, it's the same way that Monty Python used to make fun of Belgians, yeah. my go-to was German. Sure, so he used to just yeah. do the Nazi stuff to death, and just yeah, he'd yeah. always make him frustrated. Stop <laughs> making jokes about why you got you got to get some more Jews in the train. It's like <laughs> oh, all no, that stuff. Man. You know, we just oh, just hammering this for guy. hours. Yeah, for hours, and it was just a bunch of sta- a, a bunch of stuff on tape that would. We should never release. Ever. Oh, you should. But you know, <laughs> just put a box set together. <laughs> so that so it was inspired by like uh, like hearing records and you know. yeah, Derek Live, and of course, you know the uh, the comedy albums I had when in high school and stuff. I remember the first one that really made a big impact was uh, Richard Pryor's uh, Was It Something I Said? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I thought that was like a brilliant album. And that's the album that my father came in and said, what the hell are you listening to? Right. Because he heard the N-word right. really loud right. one day. And uh, you know, I, so it was like I had to hide his records. And it was yeah. just like, you know, the uh, little Richard Pat Boone thing where yeah. I had to hide the black records. <laughs> and my dad couldn't hear them. Was he real, that was a real conservative dude? Yeah, a little bit on that. You know, he just thought it was shocking that I would listen to anything. Some, yeah. Somebody saying the N-word yeah. over and yeah. over. Was that he, was, was he uncalled a, for. Was he a nice guy? You get along with that guy? It was a, Well, actually, in his family, he was the one that broke the mold and left and some 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 people in his family were were racist you yeah know? so he was the one that had a more world view but uh, he, racist Canadians. Yeah, he he didn't want to hear me listening to somebody yelling out uh, the N word loudly. I have such a, a stilted or fucked up, you know, idea of what what's up in Canada. I mean, was it that diverse a culture? 
to where you know racism would be oh yeah i mean i i think uh in when we when we were stationed in halifax i noticed racism for the first time in canada yeah and it was like you know one black student in the entire school right and, and he got into uh, he, a lot of trouble and he, a lot of a uh, lot of stuff so the one yeah. guy but the main thing at the time you know you're talking 1962 63 it was mainly Catholics against Protestants. I mean, right? That's why I thought in French, yeah. in French I mean, people against yeah. non-French people. Well, yeah, right? that's always been there. Yeah, too. Catholic against Protestants. So it was that like was a, weird. Like uh, my mother would tell me to go get, go to the local store to get some milk and stuff, and I'd have to leave the base to go to the store. And on the way to the the store, people would grab me and go, "What are you, Catholic?" Or, and then I try to guess right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, what were you, Catholic? <laughs> ah, Protestant. But you know, we I I never liked religion to begin with. But I always tried to say the right answer yeah. when they asked me. I'd look. Oh, the guy's got a cross. Catholic. I'm Catholic. All right, get some. <laughs> milk and get out of here so you're doing comedy in punk clubs and and that's sort of where you begin to to get that style which was like because like for me like you were you presented yourself that way but i remember in that special you were wearing a striped shirt i think is that possible? Well, it, it was a multicolored shirt. It was like the 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 bit was the rock star bit with a tennis racket. Yeah, oh, that's the, right. So you the did kid some, pretending to be some a mild rock star prop in his usage. Room. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but it was definitely sort of surreal. Not a lot of uh, like you didn't get the sense of character that you have now. Yeah, it was totally different. I mean, I look back and I go, "What the hell was I thinking?" And it was totally different back then. But uh, at the beginning, I think uh, primarily the influence was Steve Martin at right. the beginning, and then when the Richard Pryor the first concert film came oh, out, yeah, I right. remember seeing that three, Ooh. four times a day. Was that like seventy nine or something? Yeah, watching it and then going on at night, and uh, that was a big influence. So after you do the punk clubs, when when do you start? Where do you, do you start doing more venues that aren't comedy clubs? Just well, to- yeah, I started going all the local, like the folk bars, the heavy metal bars. I I played in uh, all kinds of music. So uh, that's sort of that, well, that makes sense. So you had to be pretty, you had to grab them pretty quickly. Yeah, you had to be. And, in, yeah, but it was also the luxury back then. Uh, you know, 1979 in Ottawa, most people had never seen live comedy at all. Right. So it was kind of a treat, and I had tapes and music and all yeah, this yeah. stuff. It was like more Big show, more performance art. Kind yeah, of, yeah. You know, so without the attitude. Yeah. But <laughs> you know what I mean. But uh, they just thought it was thrilling to see it live anywhere, and then you know finally. The people from Yuck Yucks, Toronto, they came down to visit because they want to see who's this kid making noise in Ottawa. And uh, I brought them to the punk club where I started. In the who's first, that, Breslin? Yeah, Breslin and, and another comic by the name of Steve Brender. And I remember them sitting there watching the punk crowd, you know, bouncing around, all this, you know, clash playing yeah, really yeah. loud in the background. And they turned to me and they said... You do comedy here? And I went, oh, yeah, every week. It's great. It's, they love me here. Okay. <laughs> this is different. And did they book you? Oh, uh, yeah. And and then uh, it was a line in the sand because when I got to Toronto, there was a whole group of comedians. No, not a big group, but like 30, 30 comedians. Who were they? Like who, Howie Mandel came right. out. You was know, he yuck, the, yuck. one of the guys? Oh yeah, he was. He was like he was like Your the generation? biggest star at the time. And then Jim Carrey jumped in later on. You know, but Howie was the first big breakthrough. But for who anybody. were the other core guys there? Like when you were there, that you remember? There, there's a bunch of people that you wouldn't recognize the names. Well, and let's stuff. give them some love. Give a few of them some love. Ah. Are they still at it? 
Uh, very few. Like most of them are behind the scenes now. Uh, I mean, the, there's still smart. a couple. Like I think Steve Brenner still does it. Evan Carter and there's a couple, couple of guys that still do stand up. But for the most part, most of them are either behind the scenes or they because, dropped out. But I, it, it's also a thing too that the problem with Canada is they have that mentality of. You know, socialized medicine is okay, but socialized entertainment where they go to you, well, you've already had your turn. What do you mean I've already had my turn? Oh, right. What do you mean I can't do another special? The last, you know what I mean? Like I had three specials up there on CBC and three down here in Showtime. And I thought if I was just in the States doing it for a network here, they would have a piece of paper that made me sign not to go anywhere else. And for a it. year anyway. But for yeah. Canada, their attitude was like, okay, you've had three, yeah. you've had your turn. Come back when your body I, changes. I go, wait a minute, yeah. that's. That's a crazy attitude. And that's still that, I wonder if it's still that way. Yeah, a little bit for a lot of us. I mean, it, it is certainly for me. They they consider me, I've, you know, having had the turn. So when you get down to Toronto, when you're doing Yucks and you're part of the crew of guys, and now did he open up all those clubs across Canada at once? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, I actually open up, in the early days, I open up the majority of them. I was the first act to play there. And then after me, of course, you had people like uh, Norm MacDonald yeah. and Jeremy Hotz and stuff. Yeah. Know, so they, they brought up the second wave. And, do you, do uh, they all look at you as like one of the granddaddies of modern Canadian yeah, comedy? A little bit, you know, it was a little like having an older brother, one grade ahead kind <laughs> yeah. of deal. But so, where does uh, when does the uh, the drug start? Uh, immediately, <laughs> as soon as I got to Toronto, hey, what's this? Hey, yeah, what's yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. Hey, and all of a sudden, you get offered like like all these drugs, and I yeah. couldn't believe it. And uh, yeah, Toronto was like you know, Toronto always tried to be like New York, so we had a little bit of. In, in all the stuff coming up. All the debauchery. And yeah, then, yeah. And then, you know, being able to come down to L.A., like the only reason we got down to L.A. was Evening at the Improv was co-produced with a Canadian company, and one of the stipulations was each show had to have one Canadian act. So, Is that true at the yeah. beginning? So that was our that was our reason to be in the States, and our, our first U.S. television exposure what was that, in the was early that. 80s, mid-80s? When oh, did yeah, that start? early, early. Early, right? Because like yeah. I remember doing it in '89, and I think it was already about done when they were yeah. shooting them down at that Westwood Improv. Yeah, like the huge one where they just they treated the TV show like just another night. Yeah, like I was doing my first TV appearance, and like I think Spade was there. And he's like, "Nah, I've done a few of these," and like it was just yeah. like no big deal. And to know, me, it was like the biggest weird. deal. Yeah, it, 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 towards the end of the '80s, it really got saturated on TV. There was so many. Yeah. stand-up shows that it had to die down a little bit. Yeah, I did my first... The uh, first appearances were in 89. Yeah. But it was nice. But coming out to, uh, you know, L.A. and meeting people like Sam Kinnison and stuff, yeah, there was an introduction to do the debauchery down here, which was on a higher level, obviously, because he had more years to practice. Right? <laughs> more years to practice <laughs> and more, I would imagine... Started in the 20s here, apparently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you read some of the Fatty Arbuckle, what yeah, the yeah. hell happened? Oh, well, you know, it goes I mean, way back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. way the, back. The documented debauchery. <laughs> we don't know about the undocumented <laughs> debauchery, except for the parties we were at. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um but but so you're too like you're a big act in Canada. Uh I I am I'm, I'm known to a certain amount of people. Like when people ask me if I tour, I go, like Lady Gaga tours. I just show up at occasionally at certain places. Yeah, yeah. You know. But like the like but like at the time, like when you got down here, because I guess I, I, I think I met you over the years, you know, at different places and you were definitely you seem pretty good. You look pretty well, you seem relaxed. 
But like there were times where like I was just happy to see a guy that seemed more angry than I was at the time because I was just a kid, but also just sort of like, you know, off stage, there was like, you were like just frenetic and just fucking (laughs) like, oh my God, this guy's about to pop. (laughs) Yeah, there was that period. (laughs) (laughs) You get on stage and right away it was like, oh Jesus, what's happening? And it it was a lot of uh, peer group pressure. Like I'd read, uh, John Belushi did what? Well, I got to try a speedball. I got to, I got to, you know, like everything Pryor did. Oh, I got to try that because Richard Pryor. You were that guy? Oh, yeah. Kennison was like that too. Yeah. This weird sort of like, uh, you know, I'll show them. Yeah. I got to try it. I'll I'll represent my group. I think Kennison actually went up to the chateau to do it. (laughs) Like that was where he was like that. But uh, so, so did you get strung out? Um, I was a heroin addict for a couple of years, but uh, then again, uh, when when other comedians would ask me how I quit, and I tell them, I I got on my knees, I prayed, and, and the uh, I didn't Obsession even go through was withdrawals. It just it stopped. Really? And like the following week, I played at a club in Atlanta, which was notorious for paying us off in drugs. And I just no thanks, I quit. You know, and I was very lucky. I I don't know really how. Did it you stop happened. everything, or you just stopped? Yeah, that? everything. Really? Yeah. And that's and that's been a long time. Uh, it's been what thirty thirty years almost with no hard drugs no whatsoever. Shit. I mean, uh, after my liver transplant, I asked really asked my doctors if it was okay to smoke pot, and I was surprised that the the head doctor, Toronto General Hospital, he said we we'd prefer you to eat it than smoke smoke it. So yeah. so now occasionally I'll have a brownie or something. That's it. So was the liver thing? Was that from? Drugs or alcohol? Uh, yeah, it seems I like mean, a long time back. You must have really. I contracted it Hep in. C, and then that caused the liver damage. Oh, and uh, when I went public with it, uh, a whole bunch of people from that era, the punk scene in Ottawa, they they contacted me and said, "I have it too. I have it too. I have it too." And then, but I when I asked them of how 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 they got it, and they said, "Well, I I never used needles." And then I thought, "Well, how did we all get it from the same time period?" And half of us didn't use needles. It was from the saliva on the dollar bills that we passed when we snorted any drugs. Seriously? Yeah, the blood. You know, the, it, you know, coke was cut with a bunch of stuff to make you sure know, make profit. And if you had a a, a a cut in your nose, the saliva and the blood really would would you know? To, and and as soon as you make contact with somebody else's blood, welcome to the club. You yeah. Know? Part of the Hep C, but I was surprised it lay dormant in my body for almost uh, twenty twenty three years. You had no idea you had it. Yeah, I was just going along. I thought I was getting tired of being on the road a lot, but uh, my wife suggested I go for a checkup when I visited my father in the uh, who was in the hospital in Ottawa, and uh, a Canadian doctor found out the real problem within uh, one or two blood tests. Really? Yeah. Now, and, and it was L.A. doctors had totally. Well, you're just tired from being on the road. They they didn't. They didn't go. They oh, didn't really? find out the uh, the reason. But and uh, how long ago was that diagnosis? Uh, I had my liver transplant uh, March 2013, so it was about two years before that when I was diagnosed with the Hep C. Just and, under, you just missed the cure. Yeah. So I, I I I literally had to stay in Canada when when I was diagnosed. My my father, who was still in the hospital, he said, "You can't go back to the states because you'll die." And I said, "Yeah, you're right." So my my wife had to endure. Uh, doing renovations to sell our house in Glendale for a whole year by herself. And then she rejoined me in Ottawa a year later. 
So let's 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 backtrack to a bit because like so you had a house in Glendale and you know you're one of these guys not unlike you know Scheidner and some other cats that you know like were really able to make a living during the 80s but were there once you moved down here what year did you move down here uh i think it was 88 89 so you know kind of late after the boom so you were living in canada but touring america right well i actually even when i lived down here the majority of my stand-up was done in canada because i was just more well known and it was easier to get gigs but was there was there opportunities that happened down here? Did you get like deals uh, and shit? A little bit, but uh, I have a whole history of the bad luck. I mean, one year I was put on a holding deal with uh, CBS, and I was given sixty thousand dollars, sixty thousand dollars for the holding deal, sixty thousand dollars to write a pilot. Went through the whole rigmarole, and just before we shot the pilot, the the CBS uh, president says no, and he says no to the independent producer who's been channeling me through right and the reason was this guy had been the president last year right and he had treated his right-hand man poorly so now the right-hand man who's the current president sure said, this is all and so I'm, I'm sitting there going this collateral damage yeah yeah collateral damage for 120 grand and this is how hollywood works oh my god but you got the bread right yeah oh yeah yeah but i had a series of bad luck stuff like that you know like like i i got a new agent and he said okay we're gonna put you where you belong i got my two biggest clients uh, steve martin and john candy were for the next five years let's concentrate on mike down i go oh yeah. great we you know we finally found somebody three days later he gets up in the middle of the night has drink water has a heart attack and i'm going oh my god he's dead know? yeah so i have a series of three or four people that have died once they realize that i was good that i would be good for them and it's always so the joke after a while was don't like me too much because <laughs> if you want to live maybe you were being truthful with sam yeah maybe the souls you needed the souls so you could but, live yeah I had a string of bad luck i, I never understood and then, of course, there was the uh, the stuff that I used to hate was going on these auditions where the manager and agent would say, oh, uh, yeah, they asked for you. Yeah. Oh, they saw your special. They love you. And I'd yeah. go there, and there'd be yeah. 15 Chinese guys. And I'm going, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> and then the casting guy would come out, and you are. Yeah, and of I course. Go, Why you? <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it takes a long time uh, to realize they're lying to yeah, you. Yeah, I, uh, I, I just couldn't handle that. And then I was diagnosed in 1993 with uh, bipolar manic depressive, and that just flipped me out. When, when The moment I realized. I remember that. I remember yeah. running into you like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when I couldn't get on Letterman to promote the third special, and there, I, I was listening to my manager on the phone, and their attitude was, oh, we don't care that it's a third special. We don't need them on the show. And that's when I realized, oh, my God, comedy's not like sports. No matter how good we are, there's, there's no guarantee that we'll be playing on a team. Oh, no, it's not a meritocracy. Yeah. No, it's no. It's just like, and that flipped me it's out. Worse. And, yeah, I wanted to check out at that point. I tried suicide a couple times. You did? Yeah, and then fortunately, I had a good experience in a psych ward in Glendale at, oh. a, at the Adventist Hospital that turned me around. And But I've been struggling with it ever since. Wait, that's keep a way. It in check. So you think that all the drugs outside of you know wanting to you know match your heroes well I, I i certainly believe in the theory that the drugs escalated the effect of the mental illness right but do you believe that you're self-medicating 
Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. For a lot of it, yeah. yeah. Like, because were you always depressed? Did you actually have mania? Well, uh, my, my cycle, I would get really, really angry. I'd blow up. That was your mania? Yeah. It wasn't really, like, you really, didn't go buy and, shit? And, and then I would get really depressed and want to kill myself, you know. It was for very, months on very, end? Yeah, very simple cycle. Ugh. And I would just have these, what my wife would call episodes. She'd stay with you through all this shit? Yeah, that's the amazing thing. I've been with the same woman for 30 years and she's seen me at my worst and my best you know wow so so when you say you tried to kill yourself what do you mean you really tried to well you know the thing in california i had this thing where i, I would get mad and i would storm out of the house because i didn't want to you know lay lay it on my wife completely well that was like proactive well a little bit i mean but it, it took a while before i just go i better get out of here so i drive and i drive by the gun store in glendale <laughs> and i'd say oh my god if if i would have signed up for it last week i'd, I'd have the gun now or i could <laughs> or i could kill. use it but it's that stupid seven day waiting rule that they had right, right. which was it's a very good law because sure. most people calm down after seven days. Right, right. You know, they don't yeah. stay in that state. Well, it's like that Jimmy Tingle joke yeah. where the guy goes in to get a gun. It's like, I need a gun. And he says, well, there's a waiting period. And the guy, and the guy goes, how long? And he's like, seven days. It's like, well, the guy will be gone by then. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So so finally, one time I was I was mad again. I was having an episode and I said, okay, I'm going to go in there and sign up for the gun because I will get mad again. Right. This will Planning ahead. Again. Yeah. Yeah. But so when I went in there, you know, Glendale's a Republican stronghold. Yeah. And I realized that immediately when I walked into the gun store, there was a poster of the Clintons with crosshairs on their faces. And really? I went, I went, oh, Republican gun store. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm looking at the guns. I'm really shy because I'm not a gun person. I, even though they're under glass, I got my hands behind my back and I'm like <laughs> looking at them. And the guy comes over, and goes, oh, you're looking for a gun? Uh, for what purpose? And I said, security, which is, you know, the safe word yeah, for those sure. people. Yeah, of course, security. Security. Yeah. He pulls out this gun and he goes, uh, don't be fooled by the size. It has 14 in the clip and one in the chamber. And I said, oh, in case there's two of them. Yeah. And nothing, <laughs> nothing. Nothing from the guy. He's just deadpan. Like, all right, let's look at this other guy. <laughs> and finally, he pulls out this card and he says, look, I run a target range on the other side of town. Why don't you come, you know, buy some ammo, rent some guns, see which one you feel comfortable with. And then, and then that's when it hit me. No seven day waiting period. If you kill yourself at the at the yeah, range, at the target range. So I thought, <laughs> oh, oh, this is the plan. This is foolproof. Yeah. And the only thing that saved me was that thing in the back of my brain that my mother don't get caught with dirty underwear. So I had to go home and shower and change and stuff. Really. And, and while I was doing all that, my wife had left the house. She knew I was like overboard. She phones my manager, and I'm just about to leave to go to the target range. I wrote the note and everything. And uh, it's my manager on the phone, and fortunately, he also represented Dr. Drew Pinsky. Yeah, yeah. So we had Drew on the other line, he was, and they talked me into going to the hospital. And my attitude was like, yeah, sure, I'll go to the hospital. But I've got that card. I can go anytime I want. So yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll go through the motions for yeah. you guys. And thankfully, uh, it was a great experience at the psych ward that made me think, okay, maybe I'll give the medication Pins a shot. Pinsky stepped in? Yeah. He, He's a he, smart guy. He, yeah, he convinced me to go to the hospital. I went, 
and I actually had a good stay. I mean, uh, I was supposed to be there for 72 hours, but at the end of the 72 hours when they wanted to release me, I said, I, I really like it here. It's been great. I'll, you know, I just, I just participate in group therapy, and I'll have to take a shower a day and fill out the food thing, you know, and, and it's fun. You know, these people are great, and, I, and I've got everybody's button. I can make everybody laugh. I felt like, you know, uh, Jack Nicholson in the Cuckoo's Nest. I had everybody's button. There's this one kid, all I had to go was... And he go, oh, that's a stay. Be laughing like yeah, crazy. You're killing. Yeah, I was. I was worried. I was coming, and no one could come. You know, no one could phone me. No one could visit me unless I said so. So it was the first time I had complete control over anything like that in your life. Yeah, and it's, so at the end of seventy two hours, they go, okay, well, we have really they, they diagnosed me as bipolar, manic depressive. They gave me a prescription. And I said, well, I really like it here. Is there any way I can stay? And the doctor goes, uh, well, I can't answer that question morally, ethically. And I went, oh, I understand. I still want to kill myself. Sign here. <laughs> I stayed for two weeks, 72 hours at a time. But two weeks, I, I still want to kill myself. How long were you in there total? Two weeks? Two weeks, yeah. Best vacation I ever had. So, it was like, you know, some people like to go to the beach. Uh, I, I like going to the psych ward. So they checked you in for the, the observation thing. Yeah, well, it's a mandatory suicide watch for 72 hours. That's a, see, that's, so you got to the yeah. point where your manager knew, too, that you Yeah, were. I mean, yeah. When my wife told them all the stuff that was going on. And uh, I, I was very lucky that I couldn't manipulate them to get out earlier because that's what happened with Richard Jenny. At one point, he talked his way out of a 72-hour, you know, a mandatory suicide watch. And, you know, and like w later we all, when we found out, we went, well, how did, how did he, you know, it, it, get they, they should have kept them in. They shouldn't have let them walk out in the middle of a 72-hour thing. He had the real manic episodes, right? The paranoia and the... Yeah, it was very unfortunate because there was another guy that, uh, you Your know, generation, you yeah. knew that guy. Yeah. You want to know if something fucked up? I was doing his weekend when he did it. Wow. That he was in bad enough shape that he canceled it. Then it was just in one of these weird-ass yeah. coincidences. The Saturday night, we found out, you know, and like I didn't draw... You know, I, I guess they gave everyone the heads yeah. up, but that, like but, that's but the, it's a crazy thing. Like I like I said in my act, and but he had a lot of guns. You're lucky you didn't have any. Well, yeah, uh, I I didn't know uh, other than going to the target range. That was my big eureka like a, plan. That, that was your big plan. It's like I'll show them a target. Yeah. I'll show them what a good shot I am. And, and it was weird because I I debated whether or not to bring it out on stage because I I didn't want to influence somebody to go do it. But then 60 Minutes came out with a piece about it, and there's apparently eight people a year do it in at, the United at States. shooting ranges. Yeah. And my first thought was only eight. You know, I mean, I was I was surprised it was such was, a small number. Was your was your other thought like I thought that was my idea? Yeah, wait a minute. But I I figured if if they talked about it, it's okay to say it. And I mentioned, you know, like you know, don't don't kill yourself at the end. So you did bits about it. Yeah, of course. I mean, everything was fodder for the act. Always. Always. Once you got rid of the tennis racket. Yeah. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I learned a long time ago, I play the cards that I've been dealt. So I was dealt the addiction card. I was dealt the manic depressive. And now I was, I'm dealt the uh, transplant thing. Wow. It's like, you're, you're lucky, man. You're, you're yeah, lucky. I was very lucky. But on a lot of levels, you know, you have this bad luck that you think you have in show business. But <laughs> on, on the other side. Yeah, the, the marriage thing, I've, I've been very lucky that way. So, yeah, I've, I've, I have my good luck and I've had my bad luck. So when you got out of... Uh, uh, the psych ward what year was that was that uh, i think 93 oh yeah something like that yeah 94 and by that time you're not using any drugs but you know so they got you on some sort of medication that worked uh for a while and then they said well, okay we have this new drug that 
you don't have to go through the same. Like on lithium, originally, I had to take a monthly blood test to make sure the levels were. Yeah. So they had a new drug that came in that uh, you didn't have to do all the blood tests and stuff. So I said, oh, okay, great, I'll try that. And then there was a couple others. I tried one that um, it really affected me t- uh, doing the stand-up where I was in a corp gig in Florida with a, you know old people. And uh, I just went blank, white noise, and just I cu- I couldn't I couldn't remember a word of my act. And I yeah. said, it, and I was so fortunate that after the gig, the guy who booked me, he's saying, "What the hell? You know, you stopped five minutes into it. You couldn't do the show. What's wrong with you? Oh, I'm on this new drug, Topical, or whatever it was called, uh, Topamax. I yeah. think it was." And he said, oh, my wife's been on that. She's been in bed for two years now. She can't function. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So I was lucky again that the guy, the yeah, the guy understood and said, okay. How old were the people in the audience? Did they know the show was short? Oh, yeah. <laughs> they were they, they were really uh, angry that I had stopped. And I, I was saying to them, as they were leaving, disgruntled, saying, oh, this is unprofessional. Blah, blah. Yeah. And I said, look, if this is the worst thing that happens to you today, God bless you. But <laughs> think about from my end, I I don't know what's going on. I, I can't function now. It's like, and, I, I think I have the worst of this. And did well, what did they do to level you off? Are you leveled off now? Uh, yeah, they, they they switched me off that drug to something else. It, it You know, the, the whole drug thing, it's like a crapshoot. You know, you find... You, you hopefully you you can find something that has the least amount of side effects for you and it works you know but sometimes it takes trying three four different medications before you find the one that works for you did you always do a lot of corporation get corporate gigs uh to a point you yeah. know but it was always like i used to always think it was funny cuz i would tell people i can clear this room without saying fuck you know, I, it, it's not that those swear words are not the ones you got to worry about. It's the ideas that you, you know, I can clear this room without swearing at all. Yeah. That's a point of pride. Yeah. I can make everybody so sad yeah. and uncomfortable. But it was funny, though, in Florida with the old people, I did the, I used to always do the joke when I did a corp gig. Yeah, the guy that booked me, he said, don't say the F word. Don't say the F word. Ah, what the hell? I'm going to say it. Funeral. All right, boom. And everybody's happy and everybody calms down and enjoys the show. But, I mean, it's ridiculous when they go, ah, you know, like yeah, a person who's 98 years old, do you think they can't handle somebody saying fuck out loud? I mean, well, that's true. Yeah, the old guy. This guy's guy, yeah. been through the war. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's like, a couple of them. Yeah. I mean, did you know Rodney? Uh, I met him briefly through Sam. Uh, I was one time I was in New York. He was there, and Rodney was doing the headline set. And Sam goes, "Hey, you want to meet him?" I go, oh, "Yeah, fine. you know, of course. You know, it's yeah. Rodney. Yeah, you know, we go in there, and he doesn't even knock. He just opens the door. Rodney's in the bath bathrobe with a towel around. He's all sweaty, and he's doing a line of coke. Right? Yeah. He, he looks up. He goes, "Hey, Sam." <laughs> and he goes, "Hey, how you doing?" And then he looks at me, and he goes to Sam, like, "Oh, who's this guy?" Yeah. And Sam goes, "No, he's cool. He's cool." And then I go, "Oh, hi, Mr. Daniel I just." It was a fantastic set. Like, every bit worked. I, yeah. I loved it. And it was a lot of it I had never heard before. Yeah. And then he turns to Sam and he goes, I thought you said he was cool. <laughs> you know, and I thought, all right. I shouldn't say anything else for the rest of the night. <laughs> I, I overstepped. I was I was a fan a there too for excited. a minute. <laughs> I thought you said he was cool. <laughs> that must have been great. <laughs> so you hung out with Sam a lot? Uh, occasionally. You know, yeah. like I, I, I could get his attention by, like, a lot of people at the time, they would, they would get his attention by imitating Dice. Mm-hmm. 
but they would always imitate the uh, the certain voice, and I would go the you know Dice had two voices, yeah. So I would tell him, oh, "Why is Sam so upset with me?" And that yeah, yeah. would make him turn around and go, "Oh, McDonald, oh, you bastard!" Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I think Sam was the quintessential. Remember on the Ed Sullivan show, they had these acts, the the spinning plates. Yeah, they have the little band. Sam was like that. Sam would go into a party and he go, "Oh, how you doing? Oh, Mark, how you doing? You son of a bitch! Oh, McDonald!" He'd spin all the plates. Yeah, he was a charming motherfucker. And then all of a sudden, people would realize he's not in the room anymore. He's somewhere in the bathroom doing drugs. Yeah, and all the plates would fall. Where's Sam? What's going on? I thought I was going to get some drugs. He's going to do I thought it was on the inside. Yeah. Everyone thought they were on the inside. Yeah. I, you know, I had to reckon with a lot of that shit. Cause look at that. That's old picture of me and Sam up there when I was way out of my mind. But, like, you know, he was like, you know, he really fucked with you, man. He, yeah. yeah. He's a real brain fucker, that guy. He was He was, he was a funny. I mean, you he know, was he was funny. one of those guys that made me laugh out loud. You want, It was fun to be yeah. around him. Like, you know, when, and, when he wasn't fucking yeah. attacking you or, yeah. you know, you know, you weren't on his bad side. But there's plenty of times now I wish that, like, Bill Hicks was still around. I wish Sam was still around. Because I'd like to hear their interpretation of what's going on now. Yeah, you know, absolutely. We need a couple more voices on our side talking yeah. about it right well, now. everyone's talking about though and like big mainstream guys are talking about it and some of them are you know are holding the line pretty well i i was very surprised i'd be curious how sam would feel about yeah. this guy i don't know what side he would fall on yeah. to be honest with you <laughs> you know what i mean yeah there could be a 50 50 on that <laughs> I could just see him at the inaugural ball. Oh, you pussies that wouldn't perform. Yeah. Oh, you son of a bitch. You could. Bruce Springsteen, fuck you. Right. You, know, I you could. could. Yeah, I could see him. You could definitely, like, <laughs> I, I know what side Bill would be on. But oh, I don't yeah. know, Sam's a wild card. <laughs> he, I, I think that he and Trump are a lot alike Sam in Sam would spin his plate really good, maybe. Well, <laughs> well I, I, I think that he and Donald would love each other. I really do. Happy wild. <laughs> But yeah, I do. I, I do miss that that renegade force in stand up. That you you don't see it much. I mean, you know, Doug, you know, Stanhope's out there doing his thing. You know, uh, and I think he's definitely of that ilk. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and has real balls in that area. But uh, but the the weird thing is, it was never a mainstream activity. So you know, Sam was the only guy that broke through because he had the gimmick. Yeah. But you know, and then he'd trick you. Because it's like, oh, shit, he just tricked us into, yeah. you know, thinking that was funny. Holy shit, yeah. am I fucked up? But, you know, but Bill was always outside of it. You, you know, so who are those guys now? There's only a handful at a time, but I don't know. I don't know who they are. are you? Yeah, well, I, I, I don't think there's anybody that matches the intensity of Sam oh, no, now. no, no. You know, and that's what was always the, the yellers, the, the, you know, that intensity of emotion was always attractive. And he and, had those, you know, those, Sam was those preacher chops. Oh, yeah. And, right. you know, the times that he would go into the preaching thing to show the audience that he used to do it. I oh, was like, crazy. oh, yeah, this guy could have been, you know, he could have been Jimmy Swagger. He could have made a ton of money that way. That too. was the plan originally. Yeah. And the same debauchery would happen. Sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? But sure, but just, not as public. Yeah, just be low key. You know? Yeah, yeah, which was not his specialty. Yeah. Low key was not the trick. That was not the deal. So now let's let's talk about you're still performing now. You're back at it. Yeah, um, yeah. full time again. Yeah, and wh- where do you go usually? Uh, usually just in Canada. You know, there, there's I I keep finding work. Yeah, has Breslin still yeah. run you? Uh, to a point. You know, yeah. there's a certain amount of gigs that are yuck yucks, but uh, I have a 
thankfully, I'm very lucky to have a, a couple of people that somehow they find these gigs for me, and they, yeah. you know, and I really appreciate it, and I, you know, yeah, and they open for me and, and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, well, that's it's good. good. It's nice to have people in your corner. Well, walk me through. Uh, I've never said this before, but now and now I, I want to know. Walk me through a liver transplant. <laughs> so, like, what? Yeah. So you find out that your 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 liver's rotten. And and what, what what are the steps that have to happen? Well, it's it's a weird thing because uh, there was a window of opportunity that you had to be sick enough to be moved up the list. Yeah, but you also had to be well enough to survive the surgery. Yeah. So there was a point there where they said you have about two two and a half months to live without the transplant. Yeah. It's now or never and thank I remember when it happened. I remember you needed help. Well, yeah, I like to I, think I, I helped. I was very surprised that they had a a, a well, night at the uh, laugh factory. Right. And Jamie and everything they put together this thing where they sent me a check that I survived on for like 5 months. Yeah, I don't remember was I it mean, was there a Kickstarter or somewhere to send something, money? Something, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I got a check that was way bigger than any Canadian uh, conglomerate kind of situation. And it kept you going. So, all right, so yeah. you, got, you got two months to live with the liver you have. And I got the call and said, hey, we, we got the liver. You have to drive. So I had to drive to Toronto. I, they said, you got eight hours to get here or else we have to give it to, to the next person. So I, I looked at my wife. My wife said, let's pack. And she drove me to Toronto, which was like- a, From where? You know, from Ottawa, which is like a six-hour drive. So you're up there because you were sick. The, you yeah. had to be up there. Yeah. I, I, I was living with my mother at the time. And oh. then, you know, my wife joined me finally. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they uh, they phoned and uh, we had to zip to Toronto in record time and we got there and everything. But I, I had no idea, like the liver doesn't get the press the heart and the lungs do, yeah. you know? Uh, but the liver controls not only everything physical, but everything mental. So although the transplant was a total success, my bipolarism was, was uh, you know, it hit the stratosphere with the reaction to all the drugs I had to take for the transplant. So within three weeks of my initial release from the hospital, I was readmitted to the Toronto General Hospital psych ward. I spent so you got the days, liver. Yeah, I was catatonic, suicidal again. You got the liver, and it's taking. Yeah, everything you, everything was a success as far as the uh, actual operation. But, okay, but then the b the mental health thing complicated everything. And there you are, scarred and weak, and you yeah. got to go back to the psych ward. Canatonic, you went back in the psych ward, and they couldn't do anything for me. They, uh, they but they knew they were able to connect the fact that you had the new liver with. Oh yeah, oh yeah. There, there was still the procedures I had to follow for the new liver stuff. Like I had to take, you know, uh, six to eight pills but twice who, a day, type of thing. But and, who made the connection that the liver had some impact on on the brain? Uh, it was like immediately when when I saw a psychiatrist. Oh, really? They said, "Oh, he's the liver." Yeah, that's the reason we got to get him in here, and we got to. But they had no idea how to, to uh, because I I didn't want to participate in anything. I didn't want to talk. I said one or two words the whole day, and they they just freaked out. They put me on Ritalin, yeah. you know, just just to get me uh, emotional about anything. Yeah, I was just sitting there going, I don't care. I don't, you know. The doctor would come in and go. Have you had any suicidal thoughts today? And I go, not till you came in. And he'd, he'd write that down, not till I came. And I go, if you don't know if that was a joke, you're not gonna. Look at how you people are idiots. You know, we have a great healthcare system in Canada, but we have room for improvement when it comes to mental health. I think in general, like yeah. the whole world, Is that true? needs to up its game with the mental health. So, how long are you in, like, sort of like that zone of like, what is this gonna take? 
Uh, it, it was a good six months before I even uh, tried to, you know, make a joke or, you know, feel normal again. And, and then it was like another year before I got comfortable on stage. But like, but in terms of like it actually not rejecting, how long does oh, that take? Oh, well, it's, uh, there was never, I mean, it, that took right away. But I also realized the importance of I had to take the anti-rejection drugs twice a day, every day. For so, how long? Uh, I, well, for Still? the rest of my life. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. It's it's uh, no kidding. You know, either you're in, you're out. You know what I mean? Right, so, right. But I I resigned myself a long time ago with the mental health thing. That yeah, if a pill works, I'm taking it. Sure. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm not one of those people that have problems taking with, with the edge. You're gonna lose your <laughs> edge. You had enough no, of your edge. Yeah. yeah. But the, the weird thing about it, after the transplant, I completely forgot everything I'd ever written. Really? I, I couldn't remember a word of my act. And one night in the hospital, I, I came to in the middle of the night, and I had left the TV on, the little hospital bed TV. <laughs> yeah. And I looked at it, and it was me uh, just for laughs like 10 years one ago. One of those galas? Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I, I was watching, and I, I couldn't believe that I was saying all these things in a row, and I couldn't understand how, <laughs> what, what am I doing? And I thought, I had nightmares about having to get a day job, and you know, like, what am I going to, what am I qualified for, yeah. a security guard? That's about it. Right. And that's, you know, it was... Uh, so it, you had to re, re... Yeah, I had to virtually start over. And the only nice thing about it was when I went to these open mics every night, they would uh, they were thrilled that I was there. That oh, so, I would so come you to actually really started over. So you're, yeah. you, you got your psych meds leveled off, you're on your anti-rejection drugs, you know that you had an act at some point, but that was gone, yeah. so you got to go to open mics. Yeah. And, and you're feeling it out. And the only thing I can remember was the jokes I wrote about the recovery. So, uh -huh. And thankfully, most of them worked right away, so I was lucky that way. But And then the people at the open mics, they would let me do as much time as I wanted because they were just thrilled that I was there. I, I, I went to everything. I yeah. mean, like... The most out of the way, like small little thirty people, whatever. I'd go and do, and you know, I had to start over. And this was like 2013. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, I had to start over. It took a good a good year to get anywhere near comfortable on stage again. What, what did you feel fear, or was it just sort of like you know you didn't think you were funny? Like what what was? Well, it was just weird, and you know, like I I had to go back and watch tapes to learn to be myself again. And uh, the only nice thing was I would laugh out loud at something, and then I'd realize, oh, wait a minute, that's mine. I, I can do it again. Oh, great, the greatest hits. So I got the new stuff. I got the greatest hits. All right. We're ready to headline again. Uh, uh, so everybody got to watch. Yeah. You put so, it back together. Yeah, and, and they were all amazed that I you know, came back because uh, I looked really deathly before I uh, got the liver transplant. There was plenty of exposure on the Canadian media and news shows. that They followed the story. Were you orange? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was... I have I, I I look at pictures now. There was a point where three months in a row I took a picture of myself every day. Yeah, and I look at those pictures now and I go, Oh my God, I really was dead. People thought I was, you know, going to be dead. They were going to pick up the paper and read. I that remember I, was dead. I remember hearing that you were going to be dead. Yeah, it's they, unbelievable. You don't, people you, making bets on sure. <laughs> yeah, Stan Hope's death yeah. pool. You beat it. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you look healthy. You look, uh, you know, it's not bad. Full you know, of life. Uh, yeah, I'm hanging in there. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd like to lose a few pounds right now. That that'd be the only thing. But yeah, for the most part, yeah. And you're living back here? Uh, no, I'm still still living in Ottawa. That's where I had to resettle and stuff. But being here for the week, this is the first time I've been anywhere 
in the United States in five years. Oh, yeah? And uh, being back in L.A. and stuff, there is that itch. There is that thing like, uh, oh, and, uh, let's try it again. Don't. You know. Don't do it to yourself. I'm worried. But I think I'm going to try the outside pitch. And I have a couple of scripts that if I can get one of those yeah. anywhere, then maybe I can stay outside of Hollywood. And yeah, still don't come here without a reason, without some yeah, money. exactly. Some incentive. But yeah. like, what's, is it nice to be back in Ottawa? I mean, like, I go to Canada now and I'm like, whatever I used to think about it, I'm like, yeah. this is comfortable. Well, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a little, you just feel safer. You yeah. just feel, it, everything is calm. And yet, we have everything like what I call the best of the United States. Sure. We have HBO, we have show, you know, we yeah, have yeah. all the movies and the games Food. and everything. But you know, yeah. the murder rate? No, you can keep that. Yeah. Right, yeah. Now yeah. no, we we only want a quarter of that. Yeah. It's, right. Yeah. It's well, it's like it's like America without the constant anxiety, yeah. without the panic. Yeah. There's just an intensity here where, like, and I know, like, I used to think when I got to Canada, well, this is odd. You know, why are these people sitting outside? It's nighttime. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's just riding his bike? What the fuck is happening? It's 1030 at night. Exactly. <laughs> Doesn't he know there's trouble at every turn? Somebody could kill this guy. Exactly. <laughs> like, I was like, what is happening? You're he, an easy target. Yeah, they're just walking at you night. You just open up your wallet. You're outside. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> right, exactly. But now I go up there. I'm like, this is all right. Yeah. You know, people aren't like freaked out. Yeah. Everybody's hiding this freaked yeah. out. There's it's, this, it's just a little calmer. Exactly. Yeah. And and it's ironic when you have the, you see the statistics like per capita more Canadians have guns than Americans. Yeah, but they're not nuts. But yeah, the they, the shootings are you know the difference in the stats is amazing. It's fucking fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. Do you know why that is? Oh, uh, they're just a little calmer, <laughs> just a little laid back. You know, like when you say somebody from Canada, you go, "Oh, Canada's a great country." Oh, thank you. We we try. Yeah, right. Yeah. When yeah, you say yeah. America's the best, you're fucking right. It's the best. Yeah, yeah. Fucking love it or leave it, buddy. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Okay, easy. <laughs> yeah, but I, I still wonder. Like, I I assume I I you know that. I imagine growing up generationally over the years with 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 the knowledge that you know you will get health care. You know whether it's good or or bad or what. You just know that it's part of your life. That you yeah. know that that's not a question. No, I think that means something. Yeah, I, it, I, it's like the the deal breaker in Canada is that the people don't mind paying high taxes because they know it's going to go for things like you know healthcare and, and infrastructure. It, yeah, and, you know, that, the that's city. that's the thing that Americans I think they forget. The, it's a good thing to pay tax. It's it's not it's not something to admire the fact that Trump didn't pay any taxes right. for X amount of years. It's more admirable to yeah pay taxes because we all want people to live and you know have an education this and that you know there's yeah, things not, that not you so pay much here the, the the education yeah. and the living here it's sort of like yeah Come here, on. It's, here it's like oh I got away with it I yeah. got away with it right. I got away with it right you know, it's not a it's not a thing to be admired I I, that I you agree. got away with it I agree and and what do you think of your guy. That Trudeau fella. Well, I've never been like a big political comedian. You know, but just yeah, living there. That, but I mean, yeah. you know, is it all right or no? Yeah, you know, they're, 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 of course there's people up there that swear that he's the worst thing ever and blah, blah. <laughs> and, they, and then the other go, well, yeah, but the last guy was worse and yeah, this right. and that. And it's always these arguments. Sure. I, I think the thing I hate the most about social media now is people have this intense desire to let people know what they don't like. 
I don't care what you do. That's don't all like. of it. Like, just it's tell like, us you what know, you like. Let me Let's react to something positive. in a yeah. negative way. It's just uh, there's this intense yeah, but, desire. Yeah, but, but 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 when you see that on a, like a tweet or on Facebook, it's like having a great day today. It's like then it's like then everyone's like, ah, fuck you. Yeah, who exactly. the fuck are you? That's what you? the response. What the, what are you trying to pull? You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you're doing well, Mike. It cool, was uh, it was nice to see. You. It was great talking to you finally. Great man, thanks. There you go. Some hardcore comedy show there. That's what that is. That's what this was. So what do you want to do? You want to you go to uh, WTFPod.com for all your WTF pod needs. You can pre-order the book. You can get on the mailing list. Hopefully we'll all be alive and uh, uh, next week, tomorrow, whenever. But maybe I'll play some guitar that probably sounds familiar because I no longer know if I'm repeating myself, but I only play three chords of, in some variation and occasionally add a chord. So I'm, I'm dealing with some new effects here.